This CityWire podcast is sponsored by Scottish Mortgage Investment Trust. Scottish Mortgage invests in some of the world's most promising and exceptional companies. From healthcare breakthroughs to electric vehicles to a green energy revolution, Scottish Mortgage takes stakes in businesses shaping our future economy and society. As with any investment, capital is at risk. Hello and welcome to The Advice Show. I'm Nicola, a reporter at New Model Advisor, and today I'm joined by Roman Mouquet, a portfolio manager at CCLA Investment Management. So Roman sits across CCLA strategies managed for charities, churches, and local authorities, including the top-performing 3.2 billion COIF Charities Investment Fund, as well as a new strategy for retail investors, the 214 million pound Better World Global Equity Fund. Um, now, many portfolio managers have reaped the rewards from holding energy funds this year, but with its sustainability lens, CCLA thinks about parts of the energy sector a little differently, something Roman is here to discuss today. So, Roman, welcome. Thank you for having me. It's it's great to have you. Um, so, to start off, CCLA's funds do not invest in companies that generate more than 10% of their revenue from oil and gas e- extraction. Um, Has CCLA always taken this view and why was that established, if so, as kind of a a core part of its investment philosophy? So, yes, thank you. So uh, our approach to to energy um, uh, has been uh, recently kind of more made uh, clearer with a change to our climate change policy. But the way we've looked at the energy sector has not really changed fundamentally and I'll take you through the reason. Our our investment approach very much focuses on finding high-quality companies with visible cash flows, which we believe can grow and compel those cash flows at a faster pace than the market, hence delivering superior returns of our business cycle. So in practical terms, it's looking for companies with good balance sheets, capital-like operations, differentiated products, well-positioned to benefit from uh, positive long-term trends, uh, and with an ESG lens, which uh, also meets appropriate standards in terms of governance, social, and environmental factors. So on that basis, which has been the core of our investment strategy for a long period of time, it's always been quite challenging for us to invest in the oil and gas sector. There's several reasons. The first one is just in terms of pure business fundamentals. Oil and gas companies, whether they are large oil majors like BP Shell or smaller exploration and production companies in the US or refiners, they do not typically exhibit the sort of kind of quality characteristics that uh, we're looking for. Um, as you'll probably know, oil production is highly capital intensive as a business. It requires companies to spend each year significant amount of money in physical assets to simply stay still, let alone grow. Um, they sell commoditized products, uh, meaning they have no pricing power. They completely at the mercy of external market forces around supply, demand, geopolitical events. Um, and finally, the underlying oil market is fundamentally highly cyclical and volatile, uh, leading to unpredictable and unreliable cash flows. So for us, it essentially ticks very few boxes uh, based on those pure business principles. Um, and generally what we've seen is that uh, whilst the oil companies and the oil sector has period of outperformance because the oil price is cyclical and will have periods of weights, it's in an upturn, over a longer period of time on a five, 10 year horizon, oil stocks generally struggle to keep up with the broader market because after good times, 
bad times come and you don't really get that nice compounding effect that you would get with from more um stable and 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 uh and i guess predictable industries then coming back to the climate change um angle um what we're concerned about is very much a future outlook for for their businesses their core businesses so the oil and gas bits which is still a significant portion of what they do despite their pledges to eventually move their businesses to cleaner energy and on that basis we think their business is incredibly vulnerable to the energy transition eventually will lead to oil and gas demand coming down uh probably by at some point by the end of the decade and then going into terminal decline and on that front, uh we look at the international agents energy agency uh 1.5 degree scenario um which is for us what we should be striving for if we want to keep climate change at bay and limit the effects that it will have on 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 the economy on people on society at large and on that basis uh this the the assessment is that we don't need actually new exploration into new into new reserves we have enough reserves we can that we have developed to sustain enough oil production towards that scenario. So in, on that principle, for us, it made very little sense given our, our approach to long-term investments and, and trying to invest for the good of society at large uh, and harnessing the power of market to commit and to give capital to support such an activity. So that's very much why we've we've got we've come to that formalized view uh it was formalized across all our accounts in 2021 uh it was already implemented uh across some of our ethical accounts from 2019 but as i say oil and gas has always been a very small portion of the investments we made even before those dates that's 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 great thanks thanks roman um We'll come back to, to the ESG side of things, um, but what about in terms of more current circumstantial headwinds for oil? Are there any that you kind of think are, you know, are quite significant? And can you give us kind of a rundown of, of those risks and, and what you see? Yeah, I mean, our approach, because we tend to have kind of a long-term view and we tend to build portfolios relative to, relatively low turnover, we, we're not very much in the business of predicting what's going to happen over the next few quarters. There's obviously a lot of volatility in the current geopolitical situation and with what's going on in Russia. The impact of the upcoming um, embargo on Russian oil isn't clear the, the impact it will have on the market. And obviously you have the X factor, which is how OPEC behaves. Uh, but generally, what, when we look at the at the broader picture and we look at oil and gas um, demand and supply face to face, we do not think we're facing a shortage of, of oil in the world. First of all, demand has, has come back up after the trough it went through with COVID. Obviously, a lot of air travel, people traveling less because mobility was impaired. So demand collapsed very quickly, as we saw. And then it's been going back up. So if you look at here on your growth, it looks very big because obviously the base effect. But if you look at where we like to end up in 2022, is we're barely back to 2019 levels. So we don't think there's a step change in terms of demand for oil. We'll just normalize it. Uh, and when we look towards next year, um, I mean, the macroeconomic situation is a big question mark at the moment. Interest rates going up. China is still struggling with COVID. It has a pretty uh, bad uh, real estate crisis on its end. And as we can, as we know in Europe, the 
the economy is in is, is also in a difficult place. So we might go into 2023 with a relatively weak global growth outlook, which will have an impact on growth next year for 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 oil demand. So it's not guaranteed that we're, we're going to have another strong year of demand next year. Uh, then, as we as I've highlighted in for your question, is we still think that eventually and probably sooner rather than later, the effect of especially countries in Europe and in the West more generally leading the way on, on, on climate change will will show in terms of lower growth for oil and gas on the annual basis. And and, and and that growth in demand will will disappoint as as we've seen incentives are being pushed up across Europe and the US for pushing consumer towards cleaner solutions. Um, so that's on the demand side. And then we think it's going to get incrementally worse as we go towards the, the rest of the decade. Just to be clear, so what what kind of companies are we talking about that are most exposed to these um, risks that you're talking about? We're we talking about the big oil majors. Well, the big oil majors. I mean, if you think about the oil sector, you know, the oil majors are probably the more the most diversified business models because they have obviously oil and gas production. I mean, gas is a slightly different situation than oil because it's a slightly different market. You know, gas is a bit less fungible than oil. It's not a global market. It's more regional. Um, but there's also no shortage of natural gas globally. It's just that logistically, it's more difficult to transport it from one point to the next if you don't have a pipeline. So these are these elements that you consider. But generally, on a supply-demand basis, there's no shortage. So you, you may see volatility in the price. But if you believe in market forces and, and, and supply reactivity to demand, we still see a balanced market. Uh, so in terms of the company, oil and gas majors are a bit more diversified because they have downstream businesses, so they refine their own oil and then they sell it through, as we know, petrol stations and things like this. And they're trying to grow their renewable businesses or like new energy businesses, but they are very tiny and do not make any any sort of difference at this point in terms of in terms of uh, of earnings. If anything, they are burning cash because they're investing more than the actual gain. So the oil majors are very much exposed still to this. They, they will be less exposed than pure plays. I mean, what we call ENPs, which are the exploration production, which what all they do is just produce oil and then. Um, but yes, I mean these are kind of the uh, the obvious uh, players in that in that industry. Okay, okay, th- thanks, Roman. Um, I guess some some portfolio managers might argue that it's an advantageous time to hold oil companies. Um, I mean, thinking about the price, it's obviously relatively high at the moment, um, price of price of crude oil, but it's not as high as it has been. Um, and from an income perspective, I mean, we know that oil companies in, I think, in Q3 distributed record profit to shareholders. So there are a couple of arguments there for the investment case. Um, but I, I mean, what are your thoughts on that? Are those managers wrong to invest in oil companies? Are they looking at these, you know, advantages the wrong way? Well, it very depends on the type of approach you decide to to uh, to use to manage your portfolio. I mean, I'm not going to say that there's no profit that could, like, I mean, no profit can be made in oil. I mean, if you're, if you're willing to play the tactical game of playing the oil cycle, um, then you're ready to be quite active coming in and out of companies based on their valuation and, and being willing to, to trade over a relatively short horizon. It's, uh, it's a strategy get that, that, that can pay off. What we, that's not typically what we go for because first of all, our view is that the oil market is, there's so many 
factors that can impact the oil market over the short term that it's almost impossible to call. And being able to do it consistently through the cycle is 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 almost impossible. I think there's probably a few people globally that can do that uh, profitably. So we don't we don't claim that we could do that. Uh, so what we're trying to do is looking through this, looking through the cycles and trying to look at, at the longer term horizon. Um, and, and on that basis goes back to the prior questions. We don't think there's, there's a great deal of, 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 you know, superior returns potential in that market with what will likely be a structurally declining demand very shortly. And, and, and a market where there's a lot of available supply that can be, that can be developed. In terms of um, the dividends, they always, they've always been high payers. I mean, we've seen with COVID, many of them actually cut the dividend, which was a big surprise. But it's also a reflection that many of them were over-distributing for the very simple reason that, and I think that's also a fair representation of what is going on. I mean, look at Shell and BP. These dividends used to used to be built on, on what those businesses looked like 15, 20 years ago, when we were in a very different place in terms of what was forecasted for oil and gas production and, and oil and gas demand. And as reality has started to bite and and they look at their own future, which will require them to invest significant amount of money if they want to be successful in transitioning their business, because these renewable businesses are not going to build themselves and have to commit a lot of capital to do that. And they realize that they can't distribute as much capital. At the moment, they are a bit on a sugar rush because the cycle is very positive. The oil price is high, so they can distribute a bit more. But again, for us, is how, how I guess, reliable those distribution can be. It's great to be paid now. Will we be paid the same amount in a year? What about in three years? Uh, because the problem with the oil market is supply tends to, to respond to prices fairly quickly. So when the oil price overshoots to the upside, it inevitably that other shoots uh, within a few years. And we don't see why that cycle will be any different. That's really interesting. Um, I was thinking about the fact when you were speaking um, that some of these um, big um, oil and gas majors have pledged to be net zero companies by 2050. Um, I mean, BP and Petrofac and, you know, the, the big names. So, you know, are you saying that that doesn't necessarily make them look more attractive from an investment perspective and that perhaps they have, um, yeah, capital expenditure and, and considerations that haven't been completely sort of, um, absorbed yet. Yeah. I mean, there are, I mean, I mean, those, those, uh, those plans on paper look quite straightforward, but the execution is going to be incredibly challenging for them to do so in a way that is accretive to shareholders. Uh, I mean, the first thing is from a pure financials perspective, uh, as I said, at the moment, those renewable or greener energy businesses, however you want to categorize them, are very tiny. So, uh, and the amount of, you know, cash flows and asset base that needs to be replaced on the other side, you know, is in all. So the amount of capital that has, that will have to be committed to these projects will be I mean, in aggregate, probably in the hundreds of billions. So that's a huge amount of investment that needs to be made. Which is, I mean, you can say it's fine because they're moving to a better, a better type of technology. But the difficulty here is that it's not guaranteed that they're going to generate great return in doing so. First thing is they're moving into a world that is highly competitive, where they're certainly not the first movers. They're actually quite late in terms of, I mean, renewables have been going strong for almost 20 years now, and you have businesses that have already built scale, that have 
build technological advantage and know and operational know-how um, that sets them kind of already apart from the newcomers. So uh, for BP and Shell that are expertise in you know finding you know complex oil fields in the middle of the ocean or in complex geologies and have very smart engineers being able to build solutions to extract that oil, they move into a world where they don't really have any differentiated capability of what you see to to the existing players. So it's not a guarantee that they will be able to actually lead the way. They may be putting a lot of money on the table, but will that turn into profitable projects? That remains to be seen. So that's the first element. That will pressure cash flows as they do that. And 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 we'll only know, you know, in probably in 10 years whether that is actually turning into something profitable for them. The second aspect is I do think those 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 plans are, you know, as they look good on paper. There's also, they're all quite ambitious in terms of what you have to believe they can do to actually, especially on the carbon emission side of things, because they, they want to become net zero or they, depending on the company. But those plans often rely on technology that is not mature yet or is not, um, is not uh, profitable yet, such as carbon capture, for example. A lot of their pro- a lot of their plans are based on being able to capture carbon and make it profitable going forward, and that's not a given they'll be able to do so within the time frame they've, they've put up in their in, in their in their plans. And the second aspect, which I think is probably the worst, is that a lot of their projection depends on carbon offsets, like planting trees and things like this, which is fine in principle, but it's quite questionable how much of an offset it actually is, because it's obviously, you know indirect consequences of planting a lot of trees and also just the feasibility of the whole thing. I think it was estimated, and I can't remember where it comes from, but it was estimated that if Shell wanted to deliver on its plan, it would have to plant an area approximately the size of Brazil, uh, which is, you know, I mean, you want, you can characterize it the way you want, but if you want to be kind, you'd say it's very ambitious. Uh, and, and that's just Shell. So if you think BP will do the same, Total Energy will do the same, E&I needs to do the same. It, that is just not realistic that we'll be able to do that. So until we, we see more realistic uh, plans on the table, for us, it's still, you know, look a lot like wishful thinking at this point. Yeah, a lot of practicalities to consider there, definitely. <laughs> um, another So another type of company that's often found um, high up in, you know, funds focus on sustainability is tech companies. And I and I did notice that um, the Better World Equity Fund, the new fund for retail investors, has quite a high exposure to tech companies and it holds, you know, Amazon and Microsoft, for example. Um, so just on that, um, do you think, I wondered whether as an ethical fund with restrictions on where you can invest, for example, not in, not in oil producers, um, do you think the fund does automatically have more exposure to tech? Not necessarily. Uh, I mean, we we have another way to tag because, as 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 I said, based on the type of businesses we like in terms of being capital light, having recurring type of revenues, and being attached to longer term trend, they tend to be at, at this point on the right side of that of of, of that equation. Uh, because obviously, capital light, many of them are not all, but many of them are based on on subscription approach, especially software businesses, and they are still supported by long term trends such as digitalization e-commerce uh, or automation, many, many, many factors like this, where we see long runway for future growth going forward. So that tends to, to make them more obvious targets for us. Uh, 
that being said, we, we were quite diversified. We actually have quite a fair amount of exposure to healthcare as well, or even to industrials, business services, and consumer businesses. So our exposure to, to tech is not religious per se, like we have to be in tech. Uh, we tend to be very disciplined in some special evaluation side of things. So obviously, as we saw, the tech world became very expensive uh, we, as we went to last year, and we were very busy trying to uh, be disciplined and try to exit many of these companies that went to multiples that were very difficult to justify. So the market has, I mean, has corrected. Many of these companies have come back down to earth in terms of, of valuation multiples. Some of them because are, are more interesting. Others may have matured faster than we expected because there's been a meaningful pull forward of demand because of COVID. You know, e-commerce probably accelerated much faster than was any you know, anticipated before COVID because we were kind of forced to go through e-commerce. Same thing for the adoption of, of certain, you know, digital tools uh, that we use every day in our work. That's probably has been adopted much faster than it would have, ha would have happened without COVID. So there'd be probably a bit of maturation or digestion for a point of year or so. We're being mindful of that and not extrapolating the last few years of growth into infinity. That's generally not the way things actually happen. Um, so yeah, um, for us, is, the strategy is very much finding those quality businesses and acquiring them at, at a valuation that allows us to compound returns and acceptable at, at an attractive uh, pace going forward. So we're not going to buy a tech company just because if we, we think it's going to grow fast. We have to buy it if we think there's upside to its intrinsic value and we, we're getting a good price. Uh, we had some opportunity this year with the market correction, but just a few, not meaningful uh, amount yet. Um, but yes, it, it you know by the nature of the fund, it will always be a relatively sizable, uh, sizable part of the portfolio. I, I have to ask, do you think at the at the back end of last year or, or you know, whenever it was when these tech giants reached their height, if the if the fund had existed then, do you think you would have considered it for the, for the universe of the fund or would you, have you looked at those prices and, and not been so sure? Well, I mean, it was the, the very high valuations were, were a challenge uh, because they were not just high across tank, they were high across the whole market. And we had such, you know, there's a lot of free money flowing around that the market was elevated across the board. Um, so, you know, in our other funds, uh, we were trying to to try to stay away as much as possible from the obvious candidates where clearly the market was was extrapolating way too much into the future. And generally speaking, because of our focus in on free cash flow generation, we we've never been invested in the two turbo high growth type of names like unprofitable tech that were trading on almost infinite multiples because they, they couldn't generate any money. They were all about the growth. We were never really, we've never been involved in this. And that's very much all the type of companies we look for. So that kind of you know helped us in a way because we, it's not a, it's not considered part of the universe. Um, so as we move forward now, um, there's obviously the, the, um, the outlook for interest rates is still unclear, uh, but Valuations have reset back towards what we say is much more reasonable level if you look back to the history. Now, the question is very much now earnings going forward across the market, not just for tech, not just for oil and gas, but across the market as, as the economy is slow. Uh, we'll have to see if the companies can actually deliver on earnings expectation next year, uh, which, is, which is not a given. So we're being mindful of that. Valuation, earnings risk, 
being open to opportunities as the market go down without without jumping in too soon and risking clients' capital. So it's a fine balance to strike. Definitely. Absolutely. Um, to finish, I wanted to ask um, about the energy companies that you do invest in, because there are some held in um, the fund. Um, could you pick out a few that you're quite excited about and explain, I guess, why you think they don't carry some of the investment risks that you have touched on um, as regards, you know, the, the, some oil and gas companies or oil? Yeah, happy to do so. I mean, in energy, the, the key holdings that we have is, is very much next era energy. Uh, which is a US-based electricity provider. Um, I mean, to try to summarize very quickly the investment cases, the business is made up of two halves. Uh, the first one is what we believe a, a very solid regulated electrical utility business. Uh, so Nextera is the main provider of electricity to the, states of, to the state of Florida, uh, where the company has been able to build, uh, I mean, has been able to generate best-in-class returns because it has a very constructive relationship with its local regulator. And that relationship really comes from the fact that Nextera has been for many years a leader in terms of adoption of best practices, new technology, and they were also very early in trying to push for a cleaner energy mix. So they were very early in retiring coal, coal assets, uh, first moving to natural gas, now increasingly towards solar panel, which makes a lot of sense in Florida. And in terms of that has meant that Nextera has been a leader in terms of cost control in the U.S. in the utility space, and in the U.S. regulated environment, when you can cost, when you can keep your costs low, it means um, it's flow through to the final consumers through lower electricity prices, which is regulators' law because obviously uh, many of them are actually elected in the U.S. It's not also a business without growth. I mean, Florida is an attractive place in the U.S. There's a lot of people moving there. Uh, from a demographic standpoint and people moving to the Sun Belt, as they call it. Uh, and also electricity demand is typically expected to actually go up going forward as we electrify more things. We electrify our cars, we electrify manufacturing, we electrify eating systems. So electricity demand should be quite high. Uh, um, quite high, it should grow uh, at, at, at a relatively uh, steady, uh, steady pace going forward. So that's one side of the business that is is very steady, very, very well positioned to do well and and, 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 and quite the strong bedrock of, of the business. And the second half of the business is a very large renewable business. And Xterra is actually the uh, the world's largest developer and generator of renewable energy. It's mostly focused into the US, um, but it's been leading the way there in wind, solar, and now in battery storage. Um, so it's a business where we obviously see a lot of growth. Uh, especially in the US, where the adoption of um, uh, renewables is relatively lower than what we have probably in Europe. So if you look at in industry estimates, um, I would say that uh, renewable capacities are, is expected to more than double by the end of the decade in the US and then grow at a mid-single digit very steadily up all the way to 2050. So very good, very good visibility in terms of future demand for what they actually built and operate. But what we like, I mean, unlike, you know, you could argue, well, the old majors want to do the same thing. Yeah, that's great. But I think what's, what's different here is that Nextera has been one of the first movers there. I mean, their first wind farm was built in the late 1990s, so they didn't wait for 2020 to wake up to the issue. Uh, and they built a business of great scale and where they have actually built a low track record of expertise uh, and, and operational know-how, which will be very important to separate 
that's really interesting. Thank you very much. Um, and that's about all we have time for today. So, Roman, um, could you share with listeners um, where they might be able to find out more information on CCLA, maybe on social media and also in terms of if they want to read more about the investment philosophy? Um, so people can go to our website on the ccla.co.uk um, or uh, follow us on LinkedIn uh, where you can find our profile on CCLA Investment Management. Fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us today, Roman. And thank you, everyone. It was great having you. And thank you, everyone, for listening. Um, if you'd like to get in contact about this episode, you can tweet us. We're at New Model Advisor or shoot me an email. I'm at nblackburn at citywire.co.uk. This CityWire podcast is sponsored by Scottish Mortgage Investment Trust. Scottish Mortgage invests in some of the world's most promising and exceptional companies. From healthcare breakthroughs to electric vehicles to a green energy revolution, Scottish Mortgage takes stakes in businesses shaping our future economy and society. As with any investment, capital is at risk. 